The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Is there a vibrant intellectual debate going on within China? It's easy to think that in this one-party state, everyone thinks the same thing either because they have limited information because of censorship or because they've been brainwashed. But actually, my guest today says something different. It seems that within this society, and especially amongst the intellectuals, the academics, the journalists, there is a debate going on. It's simply one that we in the West very little hear about. My guest is David Ownby, who is a professor at the Centre of East Asian Studies in the University of Montreal. He founded a website called Reading the China Dream, where every few weeks, a few articles from leading Chinese intellectuals are translated into English. It's readily available for anyone and everyone. David, welcome to the podcast. First, can we start by you explaining to listeners what the project Reading the China Dream is all about? Reading the China Dream involves reading what establishment intellectuals in China are saying about China's rise, more or less. China Dream is, of course, a slogan associated with President Xi Jinping, who's made it his job or his brand to bring back the motherland to its original glory. That's what the China dream is. Intellectuals have different views of Xi Jinping and and of that, but there is a common belief in China that the world is living through a period of change, sort of the equivalent of when monarchies gave rise to democracies. I mean, many Chinese people really think the world is moving in a very different direction that China is succeeding where the Soviet Union failed and where the United States is perhaps failing as well. So this is a new historical era. And reading and writing the China dream is what they're doing. And I'm trying to capture it by reading what they're saying and making it available in a way that other people can get a handle on it a little bit. And in particular, you focus on the intellectual conversation that's going on. So not so much the political or the public conversation. Is that fair to say? Yes, I don't follow the headlines. I don't read the propaganda, the stuff that's covered in daily news. There are other people who do that very well. I don't see any need to follow that particularly. I follow public intellectuals or establishment intellectuals, the people who work as professors. Most of them are professors. Some are journalists, but they write for the larger public. I don't do a lot of academic stuff because that's very tedious, as it is in any language. We in the West don't really know that exists in China. We tend to think that you can't say anything in China. And that's what I thought, too, until I discovered all this stuff. The way I started doing this, it might be interesting to know, it started at a very particular moment. I was flying back from Vancouver to Montreal, where I live. This was about a decade ago. I had been to a conference uh, where my friend Tim Cheek, who works on 
Chinese intellectuals invited a Chinese friend of his, Xu Jilin, who is a Chinese intellectual who teaches history at uh, East China Normal University in Shanghai. And Tim had been working with and on Jilin for a long time. And Jilin gave me his most recent book. And uh, on the flight back, it's five hours, it's a very long flight, I must have run out of everything else to read, so I got the book out of my backpack and started reading it. And I was absolutely astonished because it was a pleasurable experience. And it was the first time in my life that reading Chinese, a Chinese book, was fun. I mean, it was a book that's as good as any really good history book, be it Simon Shama or Barbara Tuckman, whoever you like. And it was just astonishing because I remember I come from the part of the American South where we think food is better without flavor. And the first time I ate spicy food in China, it was the same experience. Like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> and then I thought, you know, if I didn't know, I'm a professor of Chinese history. If I didn't know this was out there, probably other people don't know it either, even people in my field. So the idea just sort of took hold of me. And over the next few years, I got together with other colleagues and we put together projects and got some money. And the website is the product of all that. So David, fill us in then. What are we missing in the West, people who don't know about this this community? What we're missing is, I mean, what always strikes me is just the audaciousness of what these guys are saying and the skill with which they do it. And it is basically guys, I'm sorry to say. The skill with which they do it to stay out of trouble, which they usually do, although not always. But this recognition or this conviction that China's rise is changing world history is exciting if you're Chinese and perhaps frightening if you're not, I don't know, but that's there, there are some who look at it that way. But it means, if you take it seriously, not only that China's rise is happening, but the way in which we have understood Chinese history and world history over the past century is quite likely wrong. If the Soviet Union was a failure, that means socialism, Soviet-style socialism was a failure. If the American experiment is going south, that means that liberal democracy is a failure. That means that everything written about China over the past century has been influenced by those two models that are wrong. And this gives Chinese intellectuals an incentive to go back and just rethink everything. And sometimes they do it well, sometimes they do it less well. I find it just absolutely fascinating what they're doing. It goes in all sorts of directions. There are Chinese intellectuals who are very chest-thumping and patriotic and proud and we're back baby kind of vibe. There are others who are worried about this because they're patriots and they like China's rise, but they don't like the direction in which China is rising. They'd like it to see it go a slightly different direction. And there's all sorts of nuances that go back and forth. Mm. I get emails from readers who will say, what do you think you're doing? These are all Chinese communists. They can't possibly say anything interesting. And clearly they haven't read much of what I've got on my, my site. There are hundreds of thousands of pages of interesting stuff. And, but, the, the, you know, this prejudice that we have, the, the idea that you can't say anything in China, which can be true, people get in trouble. It is a complicated place. But over and over again, 
I find that they manage to keep saying interesting things. Well, let's talk about getting into trouble in just a minute. But just to stay on the nuances, and you say that it goes in all sorts of directions, on your website, there's a section called Maps, where you've split people into three different categories, liberals, new left, and the new confusions, and then you've got a other category. Can you just give us a whistle-stop tour of what the political positions, or sorry, I should say, say what the intellectual positions of these three categories are and how they're different? Sure. Liberals is the broadest group, I think. At base, most liberals will be for a constitution, human rights, probably some version of democracy. In the 1980s, when China had just left the Cultural Revolution behind, I think most Chinese intellectuals would have been liberal to some degree, and most liberals would have agreed about most things. Since then, liberals have become a very fractured kind of group. You have liberals who think that the world was at its height in 19th century England, when there were free markets and uh, whatever the English were doing then, including imperialism. But I mean, they were genuinely Chinese intellectuals who will write that. So like John Stuart Mill kind of type of liberalism. That that was the best. Yeah, the world peaked at that moment. In China? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very famous. I can cite these people for you. There were people who support Hayek and free markets, thinking that if we make Markets free, people will be free, and everything follows. Uh, there are people at the other end of the spectrum who call themselves liberals who are much closer to socialism in terms of their interest in social equality, justice, that kind of thing. So there's a whole range of liberals. The new left rose basically in the 1990s, and it's an interesting bunch of people. They were inspired by the rise of neoliberalism in China, which happened in the 1990s when they brought in market forces, which made China grow very quickly, but also brought a lot of inequality. So they were hoping to recycle socialism, the entire heritage of socialism in China, outside of China, and bring it to bear on the problems they saw in Chinese crony capitalism. They are also extremely connected to postmodern tendencies and trends in the West, Many of them studied abroad, and they came back with that kind of postmodern view of the world, which questions the Enlightenment and questions... Like identity uh, politics? Identity politics? No, 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 not quite that so much. That's... No, I don't know that they did that. It's, it's much more just the notion that modernity is seen as universal because the West discovered it first sure. and then imposed on, on everybody else. So... You, there it, yeah, maybe some identity politics too, but that's not one of their stronger points, I would say. So they will cite Frederick Jameson next to 19th century uh, French socialists, next to Mao Zedong. Uh, they're very smart, very activist kind of people, very admirable in many kinds of ways, although not everyone admires them. They've moved over time. What happened with China's rise over the 2000s? is that first China addressed some of the worst of the social inequalities that the new left had been denouncing in the 1990s. Uh, I mean, there's still a lot of problems in China, but China has made efforts to cut poverty and do certain good things for people. So the new left stopped denouncing them for crony capitalism. And also as China rose, this meant that socialism was kind of winning. So the new left has moved away from a very strong combination of neoliberal capitalism 
and toward an embrace of the Chinese state, mm. which drives the liberals crazy because they're winning, pretty much. The new Confucians are just cultural conservatives who think that, I mean, they came back after almost a century of Confucius disappearing in China because of the disaster of the Cultural Revolution, the notion that the revolution was a terrible. We need to get back to some kind of identity which has a meaning to us, so let's be Confucian again. And I'm, it was much more complex than that, that, this notion that China had lost its heritage, etc., etc., etc. It's evolved in different ways, too, and in the last little while has become explicitly political. They call themselves now the mainland New Confucians, because earlier on they were inspired by diaspora New Confucians, people who had left China at the time of the revolution, set up in Hong Kong, Taiwan, the United States, and tried to keep Confucianism alive as an academic philosophical doctrine. But as China rose, uh, they got their confidence back, and they broke with the diaspora New Confucians because they think they're not political enough. So you can read their idea of the Chinese dream, or the China dream, was that Xi Jinping would decide to take off his Marxist hat and put on a Confucian hat, and that China would become... Uh, theocracy, basically, where Confucianism and communism or socialism would come together. And that hasn't worked out very well, but they're still out there writing and trying to convey their notion of what the China dream should be. I just want to pick you up briefly on the liberal group. You've written before that in the 80s, or you mentioned it just now, that that was a dominant group, and that amongst those liberals there was this feeling that China would democratise, even if not become a democracy fully-fledged, it would be moving towards that direction. I think the West has been soul-searching for quite a long time about where it got China wrong. You know, we hear a lot about the WTO accession in 2001 and the hopes that China would become much more uh, like America, like the UK. But from the sounds of things, these Chinese intellectuals in the 80s, they also got China wrong. So did they also expect the wrong, wrong outcomes? I think that's one way to look at it, yes. You can still find those kind of liberals in China... There's still quite a lot of them. I think most university humanities professors are probably some kind of liberal. They may not be, you know, wanting to vote or agitating, or they're not activists necessarily, but their basic orientation will still be that. If you go to any Chinese law school, I mean, there essentially were no law schools in China before the reform and opening period. Mm. So they set up the law schools and the faculty and they translated Western works to make law school work in China. So they're just full of people who think like Americans did. And uh, yeah, I think they sort of got things wrong as well. And you can read certain liberals who take their liberal friends to task for that. Mm. And who will say to them things like, you are wasting your time by wringing your hands on the sidelines and whining about human rights. We need to go out there and create our Chinese liberal story to tell the Whig history of China the way that English tell the Whig history of England. I don't know if you can do that or not, but that's, you know, he wants to play hardball politics. I don't know how you're supposed to do it, but that's what he says. 
So David, we've mentioned quite a lot of Western names in our conversations so far. How much influence do they have on the Chinese thinkers that we're talking about? Because in the West, you know, very rarely would you really read a Chinese thinker with perhaps the exception of uh, the oft-quoted Sun Tzu. So one of the things that always strikes me, and it's absolutely stunning, is the asymmetry of knowledge between what we know about China and what Chinese intellectuals know about us, especially the United States. I'm American, so I read more about what they will say about the U.S. than about Britain, so I have no idea. Mm. But it's just absolutely, absolutely amazing, the things that they know. You can find on my site Chinese intellectuals talking about Black Lives Matter. They are better informed than I am. Not all of them, of course, but the ones who are... And these are not specialists in the United States. These are just smart Chinese intellectuals. The Chinese press translates vast amounts of stuff from the West. Lots of like uh, lefty journalism from Latin America and stuff like that. This is available. We are, in the West in general, we're like five-year-olds thinking about China. We just have so little idea what's going on in comparative terms. How much do you think is the, that is a problem for the language barrier? For, for us in the UK, we can read American sources very easily, we can read American news very easily, and vice versa. But other than sites like yours, for example, you know, it's inaccessible, a lot of the Chinese stuff that we're talking about here. You have put your finger on it. They insist on writing in Chinese, and we <laughs> insist in not learning it. Uh, I mean, even I've been studying Chinese for 45 years, I guess. And I suspect my Chinese is about the level of a mediocre teenager. It's just one of those languages that's extremely hard to learn. I mean, the spoken language is easy, but the written language is endlessly complex. And unlike in European languages, there's no takeoff point. If you speak French, then Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese, it's a question of months to get basic fluency or competency in it. There is no takeoff point in Chinese. You can't guess that telephone is going to be Dianhua. But, you know, from English to French, telephone is téléphone. Yeah. That never happens in Chinese. And even when they use foreign loan words in Chinese, that's a terrible thing when you're reading in Chinese <laughs> and you run across Arnold Schwarzenegger, which will be 16 <laughs> unconnected characters. I, I can lose my morning on Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to figure out what in the world this person is talking about. So even when they're doing something in English or French or whatever, it just makes it worse. So it would never occur to me to sit down and read a Chinese book just for fun. It's, I mean, my translations, it's fun because usually they're not books, but um, I'm doing it with an eye toward curating my thing. So it's a great pleasure. But at the end of the day, I don't read another Chinese book for fun, right? It's just... I don't know. that There's nothing to do about that for the moment. Yeah. We need more people like me. The problem, there won't be more people like me because translation is not recognized in academics. It's not valorized. So if I did this as a young person, I would not get tenure. Mm -hmm. The only reason I could do what I did was that I'm a full professor. So I can do exactly what I want to do, and they can't do anything about it. And that's what I did. Well, let's, let's talk about the academics who don't or do get in trouble? Because I think that would be the burning question on, on some listeners' minds. You know, sure. all of this conversation, uh, you've, you've described pretty different political opinions here. 
All of this happens under an authoritarian regime, and it's almost become a cliche to say that Xi's China is becoming more authoritarian in various ways. How do the academics navigate that political environment? That's an excellent question. I wish I had an excellent answer. It is undoubtedly true that Xi Jinping is trying to rein things in. When he came to power, China was intellectually a pluralistic society. Pluralism was not a value as such, but it was just a fact. I just described a plural intellectual world where they debate and they discuss in ways that are not as open as in the West, but with very few constraints. And Xi Jinping has tried to stop that. He doesn't want a plural intellectual world because if you have a plural intellectual world, why not a plural political world, right? It's, I mean, it makes perfect sense that he's doing this from his point of view. Whether he's succeeding or not is very hard to tell, ultimately. I mean, there are examples of Xu uh, Jiangrun or Tsai Xia, or two recent examples of intellectuals who got in serious trouble. And there is no excuse for China doing that. I make no apologies at all for their doing that. At the same time, as far as I can tell, and I hate to say this, they might be listening, I think their censorship is kind of sloppy. They would rather not have these kind of knockdown, drag-out fights with an intellectual. They lose face on the international scene. They lose face in China. So I think once you step over the line or once you've become the object of one of these campaigns, they are brutal and relentless. But there's a lot of room to maneuver before you get there. I don't have talks with my Chinese friends about this because I think they're sort of embarrassed that they live in this country or they don't want me to talk about it to, to other people. But I think you can be called in to have tea with the local police several times before you get in serious trouble. They, I mean, they send out not so subtle hints that you're getting close to the line. Mm. So I don't know how they navigate it. Sometimes they navigate it by being obscure. Yeah. You know, they write in such a way that only people like me outside of China will understand what they're talking about. There's stuff like that. Other times they just change the topic, you know? Let's talk about where that line might fall. One thing I would speculate is how accessible it is, and you touched on this just now, it is to the West. Taisha, the intellectual who you mentioned, wrote something for Foreign Affairs earlier this year, an incredible piece about how she changed her mind about the Chinese Communist Party, which I would recommend listeners go read that. But that would seem to me to be a red line because you are airing your dirty laundry. And from what I know about the China and Chinese Communist Party, that seems to be you know, one of the things that would get you, get you into particular trouble. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And she wrote that, of course, after being expelled from the party. She wrote that from the United States. So she was already long gone before she wrote that. But that piece, you're right, is is just fascinating. It shows her, I thought, as someone who had been a very naive supporter of the Communist Party. Her family, her parents were military figures. She grew up within the bosom of the Communist Party. So she thought she had the right to ask hard questions and discuss things, mm-hmm. right? And she sort of discovered the party school late in life. She'd been doing something quite different and became a PhD at the age of 45 or 50. I've forgotten, but she was. it was a very interesting story. So she was just, she'd been this sort of naive communist all her life, and then she saw stuff she didn't like and thought that when she stamped her foot, they would stop. And they showed her that, no, I'm sorry, we are bigger than you are. 
shut up or get out. And she didn't shut up. So there she goes. Yeah. You know. And another red line, I wonder, is whether or not you call for regime change. So you might criticize what direction you think it is going in. But if you say that President Xi shouldn't be the president or that the Chinese Communist Party shouldn't be the governing party, that would probably get you in trouble as well. Now it certainly would. You do not say bad things about the president or about the party on a public bus or in writing. Or No, that's definitely a red line. But I was stunned. A few weeks ago, I decided to read all the writings of one particular Chinese intellectual in 2011, I think it was, right before Xi Jinping came to power, and was stunned to see him say that all Soviet-style regimes are destined to fail. They just cannot work. Communist parties are excellent for revolution, for change in a situation that needs change, but then they're just in the way because they can't share power, they can't innovate, I mean, it was, it was right out of any conservative think tank in the West. Uh, I mean, that's exactly what we've said for years. And here he was saying it out loud in public. Anyway, I then went on to read what he said after Xi Jinping came to power, and he stopped saying that, mm. or didn't say it nearly as directly. So this leads me on to my next question, David. Why are we talking about these people at all? If Do they have any political impact or are they so limited in what they can or can't say that they're essentially window dressing? Why, why do we care about them? I care about them because they're interesting. I don't pretend to understand the larger ecology of all this in China. I think they do have an impact, but it's indirect. They're part of the larger background noise that you find in any society. I think in China as well... Intellectuals, they complain always that they've lost their impact, (laughs) that the internet has wiped away whatever influence they had. I think I would like them to walk a mile in my shoes if they want to see what having no influence is really (laughs) about. (laughs) My impression is that, I mean, Xi Jinping in his talks pretends to be an intellectual. He's always, I think he has guys who find quotes for him, but he's always saying things like that. He would rather intellectuals like him, and intellectuals would rather be able to admire and respect the party. They would like to have influence. So the notion that they're going to change, that any one intellectual change China by virtue of saying something, strikes me as unlikely. But there are a lot of them out there. And if you, I mean, on my website, I'm still stunned by what they're saying today after several years with Xi Jinping basically tell them not to say it. They keep at it in various different ways. Even hardcore liberals, once their space disappears in social media, they'll go create a YouTube channel and invite their friends to give lectures. Anybody with a VPN in China can find all sorts of interesting stuff. Now, they may not want to because China's a big complex place and there's lots of stuff to buy and music to listen to and money to be made, you know. I think Chinese intellectuals are important because they are part of a complex society that we've reduced to a stereotype. And I think there's someone, I'm writing a book, I'm trying to write a book which might be entitled A China We Can Talk To with a question mark at the end, where these people illustrate that our basic notion of what China is a casual observer in China, of China in the West will think that all Chinese are sitting at home with the blinds closed, waiting for the Chinese Communist Party to fall apart before the police come and get them. I mean, that's, there are people who think that about China. 
And of course, that happens now and again in China, but that's not the life led by most Chinese, or even by most Chinese intellectuals. So I think by knowing a little bit what they talk about, it humanizes China to us. It takes away at least one of the many stereotypes that surround the way China is treated in the media. And to that extent, it's helpful. I also want to touch on the impact that these intellectuals have on the Chinese public. You mentioned their social media accounts. Are they popular on Chinese social media? Do they get widespread popularity like, I don't know, say Jordan Peterson as a public intellectual or something like that? Do they reach that status? Are the Chinese public willing to listen? There's a lot of questions there. <laughs> About 10 or 15 years ago, there were people very much like Jordan Peterson. Uh, this was before, this gets a little bit into the weeds of things, but um, internet or Twitter is called Weibo in China. And for a while, uh, there were certified accounts, and I don't really understand the details of this, but people could get hundreds of thousands of followers. And there were people who came close to being the equivalent of commentators in the West, you know, people who comment on daily affairs in a way that I think the party thought was worrisome. And this could be people like, what's his name? Rin Zhichang, the mm. real estate magnate, who was a really big mouth kind of guy who would say that the party has no business telling media what to say, that we are smart enough to deal with it. And he's since disappeared, gone gone off to jail, I think. But he was one of these guys. There were several, there were any number of them. At some point, the party decided, let's not do this anymore. And they moved everybody toward WeChat. WeChat has a smaller, the, these friend groups. If you think about at the outset, you could sort of address an arena. You could get hundreds of thousands of people to listen to you. WeChat doesn't allow that many. So that's made it smaller. But still, yeah, intellectuals are followed to some degree, far more than they are in the West, I would say. Although, again, they always complain that Internet celebrities are taking their place, which I think is probably true, too. That said, when I have had Chinese students in my classes in, at the University of Montreal, they have never heard of any of these people that I talk about. Well, that's not quite true, but they don't follow it the way I follow it. It's not at all like that. They might know Li Shunzhi, who was a very famous liberal who denounced 1989 and got in trouble for that. Or they might know Xu Jilin. But not unless they have a particular interest in these things, they're not following along at all. So they look at me like a very strange kind of person. Then why are you reading all this stuff? There's so much more interesting things to do. Mm. Well, that's something that I've noticed as well, um, spending time on Chinese social media, is the difference in the type of conversation you're having. And maybe this is obvious, <laughs> an obvious observation. But, you know, in the West, on Twitter, you've got debates about Brexit, about Trump, about all sorts of political policy issues. Whereas I find on Chinese social media, there's an absolute dearth of anything intellectual. And a lot of it is cute animals, famous people, clothes that you like to buy where you want to go travel so it feels much more superficial and that's probably people not, not that they're not thinking about it but there's probably people you know given that it's an online community but you know as, as a Chinese person I feel that's a huge shame because you know you've got all these young students who are probably very very bright not being trained to think critically and to have that debate in the online sphere. No I think you're right and even for the kind of people that I read one of the things that puts people off about Chinese intellectuals, 
is that they cannot talk about the issues we want to talk about. I mean, you can't talk about Xinjiang and China. You can't say much about Hong Kong and China. So all the issues that we in the West would like to confront with China, my folks just can't talk about it. They talk about other things, which are interesting, but we don't get that direct dialogue that we think we should be able to have. And I can understand both sides of that. It's true. It's not good that they can't talk about Xinjiang. But I understand why they don't. It's yeah. not worth losing your job over, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what they should be doing. But I understand their choice is not to confront these issues head on because the chance is they'll, they'll lose something fairly important. Yeah. And David, finally, I just wanted to finish off this conversation by a couple of quick questions about your project itself. You've, you've told me about how it got started and, you know, translating it. What about the challenges of things being lost in translation? Are there notions that you feel like just doesn't quite translate? You kind of have to explain a little bit or you just can't get translated? Uh, now and again, there were things that are very hard my philosophy is to try to translate things so that they're readable. So I de-emphasize the Chineseness of stuff unless it's really, really important. Because you don't want to produce something that sounds like Charlie Chan, you know? These are smart people saying smart things. I mean, one challenge is that the Chengyu, the, the Chinese tend to like these four-character phrases which embody sort of a, a story or an image. And they use them a lot, and they're terribly hard to translate, most of them. And if I can avoid translating them into something cutesy Chinese, I avoid it because they're just trying to make a point, right? So my translations are not for language learning. They're for just conveying the meaning. But most of the time, no, most of the time I feel like it's not that hard to get across. Or if it's, if it's that hard, I just don't do it. If I feel like I don't know what they're saying, then I, I just leave it. Because the key in translating is knowing what they're saying, right? Exactly. It's the meaning that you're trying to get across. And I think you're right about the yeah, Chinese. Yeah. You, you know, I find one of my biggest bugbears about Western reporting about China is when people literally translate something like a Chinese, like a, one of these idioms or proverbs basing a lot of history or fable. And it becomes much more of a point then it really is spoken of by the speaker because you'll have all this imagery that is just so colourful, but no one is actually saying that they're going to, I don't know, uh, slice someone apart by a thousand cuts, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, right. Yeah, but anyway, um, David, lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.